Hi, everyone. Teddy here to introduce another podcast episode. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Melanie Matthew, the founder and CEO of Prelis Biologics. Dr. Matthew has a background in immunology, chemistry, physiology, and biophysics. And what have you done lately? I first met Melanie when we were virtually introduced by a mutual acquaintance. The intro email says something like, Teddy, please meet Mel, who is one of the fastest rising CEOs in San Francisco, and who might keep us all alive 20 years longer. She's looking for a coach, I thought of you. Indeed. Well, that captured my imagination in a heartbeat. So Melanie and I had had a chance to have a chat on the phone, and I discovered that her vision was to eliminate the need for organ donor lists. More on that shortly. When I asked her, how can I help? She said she'd been in academia all of her adult life. Now I've started this company, she said, how do I be a CEO? I'm in is all I said. Rather than me try to explain it any further, we'll let Dr. Matthew have the floor. They say there are no stupid questions. That's what I was sure hoping as we sat down to talk. Check it out. Hi, everybody. This is Teddy Tannenbaum with another edition of the Teddy Talk podcast. Our theme is Meetings with Remarkable People, Lessons in Leadership and Life. And today, I'm just smiling ear to ear. I'm sitting with Dr. Melanie Matthew, a client of mine for the last six or eight months. And Melanie is the CEO of Prelis Biologics, based in San Francisco. Uh, Melanie has an undergraduate degree from UC uh, Santa Barbara in biochemistry and molecular biology and it has a PhD from UC Irvine in physiology and biophysics. So, well-educated. <laughs> Welcome, Mel. Nice to have you here. Hi, Teddy. It's great to be here today. Yeah, this is going to be fun. So much fun. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure people will be curious. Prelis Biologics, what might that be? Why don't you tell us a little about you know, what it is that you do sure. and what your vision is? Sure, yeah. So, um, first of all, the name Prelis comes from an amalgamation of the two words printed and trellis, so Prelis. And what we're doing is we print little trellises or extracellular matrix, the stuff that holds our tissue together, around cells. And we can do that at a super fine resolution and a really high speed, faster than anyone else has been able to do it before, which allows us to build human organs and tissues. And we're hoping to do that from scratch, building them inside from inside out. Okay. <laughs> I, it's, it's not the first time I've heard it, and I smile every time. When I was introduced to Melanie, a mutual associate of ours sent us an email making the introduction. And in his email, he said, Teddy, I want you to meet Melanie. Melanie is the CEO of one of the fastest growing tech biotech companies in the Bay Area, <laughs> yeah. and she's going to help us live, or all of us live, 10 years longer. Yeah. Um, you know, organ failure is a serious problem, and all of us have some level of organ decline as we age. And, um, you know, conceivably, the technology will help many people live a longer life and not just longer, but a healthier life, which yeah. is important. Health span is as important as lifespan. Yeah, and quality of life. Quality of life, exactly. I love it. Uh, when I first got together with Melanie and we were chatting, I said, how can I help? She said, you know, I've been in academia all my life. Yes. 
and now I'm the CEO of this company I founded. How do I be a CEO? Yeah, and so that's, thought, that's a really interesting transition to make. Um, it's difficult, right? From academic scientist, individual contributor, chasing down my own ideas to, okay, how do I lead a team effectively? How do I bring technology forward in a meaningful way and build a group of people who want to do that with me? Yeah. It's, it's a whole different skill set. Yeah, going from research scientist, right? to all of a sudden being a chief executive officer of a company, which sounds like it's uh, pretty scalable. Um, yeah, we believe, we believe this tech is scalable and we're, we're gunning for it. But right, um, so right, how do you approach that? Because that is a big challenge. And I think it's very easy to underestimate once you get your PhD, you feel pretty smart, like you could figure anything out. But it's very easy to underestimate um, what a skill management is and how important it is to... Um, listen to your team to develop your team properly. It's 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 a real thing, you know. Without a good team, you don't have a company. That's right. And uh, you might be interested to know that when I and working with Melanie and her team, let's see, uh, Melanie and her co-founder, both PhDs, uh, four research scientists, optical engineers, and scientists, all PhDs, just hired another PhD. So there's a lot of education in this outfit. Right? That's right. I think I think the vast majority, I'd say like 75%, 80% of our team has holds a PhD in the hard sciences. Um, and we've been lucky enough, you know, hard sciences do not select for personality or communication abilities whatsoever. You know, you couldn't care less, just get it done, right? Um, but we've been lucky to get a group of, you know, flexible, forward-thinking, positive people that believe in our mission and want to communicate and are, are working together across dis what would be considered disparate fields of optical engineering and biology or microfluidics and, you know, CS, hardcore CS programming. So um, we've got a really diverse team of PhDs that are all willing to talk to each other. And I feel really lucky to have that. Yeah, it, it's a fairly cross-functional team, cross-functional discipline team. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So it takes the physiology, the biology, the chemistry, all the physical scientists to try and sort this thing through. Yes. Um, that's actually one of the Ben cited as one of the most difficult problems in human tissue engineering and organ engineering, and perhaps why it hasn't progressed very quickly relative to other fields, is um, you need people with extreme experience and high technical savvy in biology who can understand you know, stem cell differentiation and organ development. And then you also need um, engineers who understand all of the microfluidics equations and all the different structural components that would go into building an organ with specific, you know, resiliencies and tensions. So these two fields don't typically talk to each other and they, they honestly do speak very different languages. And so bridging that gap, um, I see that happening quite a bit in our company. And I'm really, I'm really proud that we've got, you know, a representative from, from all of these different fields and they're chatting with each other about this in a real way. Yeah. So it, it wouldn't necessarily happen in academia. But in business, it has to happen. Exactly. In business, it has to happen because we all have the same goal. The engineers want to build a kidney. The biologists want to build a kidney. And they need each other to get there. And so it's it's great. It's a great galvanizing goal. Yeah. yeah. So we'll get more into the technology in a little bit. I want to backtrack a little bit and say and ask you, just how did the idea come about? You were, you were doing some uh, graduate work or postdoc work. I'm curious, how did this come to you? Yeah. Um, so I was doing a postdoc at UCSF. I worked in the uh, Diabetes Center for a few years and great, amazing group of people I was privileged to work with there. And um, I think I was driving home very late at night after an experiment, as 
is what happens if anyone out there has done scientific research, you're there to all wild hours. And um, I flipped on a podcast just to listen to as I was driving. And it happened to be on tissue engineering, which wasn't my area of focus. I was more of an immunologist, biophysicist. And um, what they were talking about was fascinating. And a cardiac surgeon was being interviewed. And I, I listened. And at the end of the interview, the host said, okay, you know, how long till we get a human heart 3D printed? And there was this long pause, one of those like really uncomfortable silences. And the surgeon said, well, maybe 20 years or more. Um, And the host was like, well, why? You know, we're doing all this great stuff with ears and skin. And the cardiac surgeon said, well, we can't, we haven't solved this one problem. And this one problem is microvasculature or capillaries. These are the tiny, tiny blood vessels that perfuse all organs and bring you oxygen and take away CO2 and other um, waste products and basically bring nutrients to the cells. And so we haven't found a way to build those. We haven't found a way to manufacture these. Um, And I thought, well, that's a simple problem, you know, and maybe it's really hard and a lot goes into it, but what it boils down to is a very well-defined, clear problem to solve. And I think anytime you have the chance to work on a clear, well-defined problem, you know, that's, that's a gift. And so. As they say, a a problem well defined is half solved. Exactly. That's, that's a great quote. Um, Yeah. So I was really, and that, that, you know, I still, I didn't leave academia right away. I did some other stuff before I started this company, but that moment really stuck with me as there is this clearly defined problem that if we solve this, we can help people with heart disease, we can help people with kidney disease, we can help people with lung disease, liver disease, people who have full thickness burns and scarring. You know, there are people with diabetes. Um, If we can solve this one problem of building microvasculature or capillaries, we change the face of human health and medicine in a very good, positive way. Wow. And that was where the inspiration came from. And what led you to think that this was not a 10 or 20 year process, but could be done quicker? Um, well, I'm typically ambitious with my goals. So, so, um, I don't know what led me to think. I just didn't think it should take that long. Um, quite honestly, I think, you know, if we can get this tech in house, um, there is so much supporting research in the area of stem cell biology, massive bioreactors. We are not the first people to tackle this problem. We're just the first people to tackle one element of it that allows the rest of the technology to come together to build the organs. So I think we just have so much good technical support in the areas of stem cell biology, bioreactors, as I mentioned, and developmental biology, that once this problem is, you know, solved, all of that, all of that can support the building of an organ. So I think that will make the process much faster. So the ultimate goal, from what I understand, is to produce, to 3D print a kidney. Yes, that is our, that is the gauntlet our company has thrown down. That is what we're gunning for, our, our big goal there. It's our mountain peak. Um, yes. So we hope to do that in a few years. You know, we, we're raising the funds right now. And, um, you know, once we have that money in the bank, I believe we can do it quite quickly. So tell us a little about the, uh, your intellectual property. What is it that's unique that makes you different than everybody else who's been trying to do this? Uh, interesting. So, um, you know, I'm not going to like read my patent on, right. <laughs> on your podcast. I don't think anyone wants to hear that anyway. No. But <laughs> almost everything so, <laughs> in layman's terms would be really good. <laughs> right, right. Everything's. Uh, now that she started reading this patent, it was yeah. terrible. I mean, it's great to fall asleep to. No, 
<laughs> That's what people say about the podcast sometimes. It's a public service. <laughs> public service. I love it. Um, so, so what is unique about what we're doing that is different than any other 3D printing technology is that, um, first of all, we use a laser, so it's not extrusion-based. Um, extrusion is where you put some pressure and, and you know, you see it with like... 3D printing a house, some cement comes out of a nozzle and it gets moved around until you build a wall and and whatnot. Um, that would be extrusion printing. It can right. be done at a pretty small level, but not small enough to build capillaries or microvasculature. Which are super, super thin, super, super small. Super tiny. So they're about a tenth of the width of a human hair, roughly. And so they are small. Um, and there are, if I understand miles and miles of capillaries. Absolutely. Yeah. So so just so the audience knows what capillaries are, if you take your fingers, your forefinger and your thumb, and you press them together, you can see they kind of go pale or white. Yes. Um, you're squeezing all the blood out of your capillaries. And then when you pull them apart again, they go they go back to pink. And that's capillary reperfusion. So capillaries are really everywhere. They're in your skin, they're in your kidneys, they're in your lungs. Um, the kidney itself has an estimated 12 million miles of capillaries in it. Um, so to, to so to extrusion print one of those, even if you could get to the resolution, would be so slow because you have to, if anyone has an extrusion 3D printer at home, they know it's like overnight or a couple days later, they come back and it's done. Imagine doing that at an even finer resolution for 12 miles of structure. It's, it's prohibitively slow. And so that wasn't going to solve the tissue engineering problem of building capillaries. Um, there's a technology I used for imaging in the lab, which is um, laser raster scanning with a, something called a two-photon or a multi-photon laser. And you have little mirrors that send a laser beam back and forth really fast. You know, like we're talking like meters per second speeds. And those are pretty good. They get you closer to building capillaries or microvasculature. But if you wanted to build a large structure, it is still too slow. It's prohibitively slow. We're talking years to build something right. functional. So what's inherently new about what we've done is we've taken a laser beam, we expand it out into kind of a column of laser. So beam expander goes from two millimeters to, you know, 10 times 20, 20 millimeters or so, 28 millimeters. And so you have a column of light. We take that column of light and it hits um, something called a spatial light modulator. What that does is it redistributes the light in 2D. So you get a 2D image of what you'd like. And then we hit another spatial light modulator and we do something called phase modulation. And that's this is where our patents are. Um, they've all been filed, so I can talk about this. But um, that phase modulation then not only patterns, so you first have a pattern in the XY, a flat pattern, like a, like a picture. And then the phase modulation starts to throw that picture, expand it in the Z direction. So what you end up with is a three-dimensional block, like a Lego block that you can print and with this laser light in this liquid media bath. So wherever the laser light hits, you have a curing of the material. And so you've, you've essentially scaled your print speed in 3D. Right. So, so unlike the extrusion, which is printing lines, right. Right. You're printing volume. Right. We print entire volumes at once. And, and the, the, the source material is, I assume, a collagen of some sort. Right, right. So um, we have collagen mixed with some other materials, but it's all, um, right now we've been able to print with all FDA-approved biocompatible materials and collagen. Collagen is one of the main components that keeps the cells happy and like they're in their own environment. Right. And so 
I'm, I'm, I'll jump ahead here in my thinking, but I, I'm I'm curious. Uh, I hear the term organ donor rejection. Yes. Right. So, if you're, how does how does this deal with that? Ah, so that's a great question. So, um, when someone typically gets an organ, um, it's usually not a very good match if it's a match at all. And most people have to be on chronic immunosuppression. So their immune systems are, they take, they take drugs to suppress their immune systems for the rest of their life. Um, it doesn't get better typically. And so that's another $20,000 a year. Medicare stops paying for it after three years. So it's all out of pocket for these patients. Wow. They have an increased risk of cancer and still a chance of rejecting the organ, as you mentioned. So there are a lot of inherent problems with that. How we solve that is we plan to source the cells either from the patient or find a perfectly matched donor. And we don't need a lot of cells to start. Cells are great, especially if you're using stem cells, um, in that you can expand them. So you can start with, you know, a couple hundred million, get out to several billion cells, and then use those to recreate the organ. And so my, my dream here is that no one will have to be on immunosuppressive drugs after getting a transplanted organ from us. So, in a sense, you want to, the ultimate goal, and there maybe we'll talk about some milestones in a minute, but the ultimate goal would be to produce a, a kidney and hand that to a, a, a doctor who it's, and it's implant ready. Yes. Yes. That mm-hmm. is, that is my, my dream is the day that we can hand a transplant surgeon a kidney. And, you know, they're physicians, they'll know it's a little different, but, it will look identical. They will perform the same transplant procedure that they had already intended to do. It will fit into a patient and work as a kidney should. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's almost, you know, it makes me a little bit speechless. It's This is pretty profound stuff. Hundreds of thousands of people are have catastrophic kidney failure in the U.S. It's uh, the last number I saw was six hundred and sixty thousand people have no choice but to be on dialysis Dialysis. or get a transplanted kidney. This is a major healthcare issue. Right. So uh, a noble goal to say the least. And and this just you know in your graduate work and then listening to that podcast and then you had this idea around. I'm not sure if I understand, but microvasculature. Right. Right. Capillaries. Yeah. Capillaries. So the idea is somehow to uh, increase the speed and efficacy of the printing of these microscopic. Right. Right. So something, let me give an example. Um, something that would take, um, let's see, how long would that normally take? It would probably take um, at least five or six days to print one of the structures that we typically print in our lab, but we do it in six minutes. Oh my. And that's a capillary network that we have tested and vetted for for blood flow. So this is just, you know, uh, it is leading edge work clearly. Thank you. A- and uh it's just it's it's very inspiring. I'm curious uh milestones. Yes. Right? So ultimately I know that you want to be able to have a kidney. It seems somewhat sci-fi and far-fetched. What are some of the milestones, uh, and I know from the research I've done, and just in you and I getting to know each other around this microvasculature, can you share with us also, what are, what are the other milestones that people could understand and appreciate that you will be reaching in order to get that ultimate goal? Sure, sure. So we have a, a huge milestone that we recently had a press release about. Um, and well, so, so the very first thing we did was we demonstrated that 
this principle of holographic printing could work. And so we announced that in September of 2017 and at IndieBio's demo day. Uh, look, this works. And look, we can print these complex structures with it very quickly. Um, and then, you know, we put our heads down in the lab and said, can we build huge capillary bed networks? Can we do this quickly with this printing process? And that was the press release we recently had, early part of uh, 2018, where we said, look, we can do a network of 105 um 105 different capillaries. They all have flow and we did it. Um, they're all 250 microns long. This is all sufficient to start building tissue with. And so that was a huge milestone for our team. Um, we're working on physiologic, metabolically active perf um, capillary perfused tissues. Now um, our next two milestones will be to do this with skin and cardiac tissue. Um, they're, kind of the easier two tissues to work with a little more homogeneous than some of the other tissues mm -hmm. like kidney. And before the end of the year, well, actually probably beginning of next year is, is where we said our deadline was we want to have a fully functional kidney nephron. And nephron is the essence of the kidney, the, right? Of which yes. there are many nephrons that make up a kidney. About a million nephrons in a kidney. Right. And um, the nephron is the functional unit of a kidney. And so blood goes in, there's a little filtration bundle, and um, then all of the salts and nutrients are reabsorbed or excreted as you need it, and then urine's collected at the end. So a nephron is the small functional unit of a kidney, and we'd like to get one of those working soon. Can you can you describe for us what a nephron might look like? Ah, okay, give us a little cool. sense yeah. of how it looks like in space. Yeah, so in space, so um, it's kind of a long, skinny thing, um, but the top part of it, where the blood goes into a little capillary bundle. Um, the glomerular capsule, it looks a little bit like a baseball, this little bundle of capillaries sitting inside of a, like a catcher's mitt, like a, like a big fat mitt. And that's the glomerulus. And, um, what happens there is there's about half a single cell wall thickness between those capillaries and the glomerular, um, collection tube or vessel there. And, that is where plasma is pushed out of the blood and it goes in and it starts the filtration process. And so you have kind of this head where there's a baseball and a glove and then a neck where it drops down into proximal tubule um, descending loop of Henle. So there's this long loop and the salt gradient that goes down there and then ascending loop of Henle comes up the other side. So it looks kind of like a giant loop of a paper clip dropping down and then it comes back out and then there's a distal tubule collecting ducts. Um, and that's kind of the order in the process of the kidney capillaries are wrapped around every last bit of that. And this is why it's such a complex structure physically. So you have a small bundle of capillaries and a tiny half cell wall thickness, you know, baseball and right. baseball mitt. And then that entire structure is wrapped in this fine network of capillaries to, to effectively reabsorb and, all of the salts that you would right. need. So as as my audience no doubt knows, baseball is my language. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so I'm curious now, you see a, a thing about baseball and mitt, that's, that's a pretty substantial uh, mass there. Give us a sense of the size of this oh, nephron. Oh, gosh. I... I am really, I, I don't remember this off the top of my head. This, I should know this because um, <laughs> we're yeah. modeling it. <laughs> we are currently modeling it in the lab. Um, so... I, I'm going to get those numbers wrong, so I'm just not going to say them. I do know that the length is about three centimeters from the top to the bottom, um, which is interesting because it's such a fine single cell wall network and it's a very long structure. Um, I I want to say something like 
300 microns um, in total length, but, but, or width rather, but I, I don't quote me on that. No problem. That was, that was a curveball, Teddy. <laughs> I, I should know that though. I should off the top of my head. The idea though is that it's microscopic. It is microscopic. Anything we see ordinarily. Right? Absolutely. It is so small. Um, you know, a quarter of a millimeter. Yeah. You can't distinguish it, but the human eye, what's happening. That's the main thing I was getting right. at. Yes. It's indistinguishable. Okay. okay. So <laughs> Excellent. got a sense of some of the milestones that, that you're trying to hit and challenges. What are, what are some of the challenges you've, that you've met so far and passed through? And I'm yeah. curious, what's top of mind for what you are expecting to come up against going forward? Very, very good questions. Um, so some of the primary challenges, you know, no one had done what we've done and turned it into a printer. And so it was previously used for um, imaging technology. And so we had to circumvent some of the things that imagers would just, you know, kind of dump some laser light off to the side and say like, that's okay. It's an abnormality. We don't, we can ignore it. Um, We've had to um, develop some new proprietary systems to both maximize the amount of laser power we have, not dump any of it off to the side um, and, and control for some of the aberrant optical effects that you normally would get to ignore in another technology. So, so there's been a lot of really interesting, fascinating engineering that we're filing more patents around as we develop this. And, um, you know, other, other questions and problems, you know, just getting the chemistry of this stuff, right. You know, like matching powers to chemistry. And so a lot of, a lot of development and testing has gone there, um, just to get the chemistry of the matrix we're printing. Correct. Um, foreseeable challenges. Yeah. Or, before we get there, yeah. Uh, so curious, you have all these uh, PhDs on your team, right. right? They're used to doing R and D. Yes. So how do you get them to think beyond just this is fun lab work, postdoc work, R and D? Into no, we're trying to commercialize something here, right? How, how do you, how do you make how do you guys talk internally about that? You know, it's interesting. That's always. Um, attention, right? So all of us, I think I mentioned you earlier when we were chatting offline, all of us tend to lean towards being R&D scientists. And I am so conscious of that because we're building a business and it is a very different beast. We want product. And, um, you know, so I kind of have, I I am the the leader here and I am the rah-rah. We are building a product to get into people. And um, it's nice. Um, one thing I've definitely got helping us, and I think everyone on our team is very well aware of, is um, we've got this really visible product that will help people. It's not a product in the abstract. Right. Um, you know, you can look at a burn victim and say they need skin. Um, you can look at, you know, someone having a heart attack or, or, you know, someone in need of other tissue and say, this is the product we're building for that. So, in that way, it's easy to keep people product motivated. Yeah, it's not some the, abstract enzyme in a pill. Right. Eye on the prize. Right. Yep. That's where the the intersection of physiology and biology come together. Right. Right. And to stay product focused also is a matter of asking a question about why you're doing something when you're doing it every time. Um, you know, do we need to do this other side experiment? Does that actually inform us on the the ultimate goal? And so always keeping those questions at the forefront yeah. is important. And for those, uh, if you go to the website, uh, prelisbiologics.com, you'll see the tagline vision is building life through light. Building life with light. light. Yes. Building life with light. And that light being the laser. Yes. Yeah. So, all right. Future challenges. 
What what keeps you what keeps you awake at night besides besides funding oh, what keeps me besides awake funding at night. what keeps you yeah, awake at night right um, like any startup like any startup um, what keeps me awake at night um, you know cell sourcing when we start to get so so we're gonna do skin we're gonna do cardiac tissue um, making sure we have the right cells from the right sources and they're clean sources and FDA approvable sources that's um, something that hasn't had to be worked out at the large scale yet. Um, it's mostly academic and research scale. So how we're going to scale that for production is something that we're going to have to get some really smart te- people on our team thinking about. Um, that, and then what's fun is that no one has done a true 3D vascularized culture before. No one's done it because no one could build the capillaries. Um, there's been, there's been some 3D cultures with larger blood vessels, um, but no one has built a full, fully vascular system in the lab. So that's going to, it's just going to be really interesting. You know, can we get the cells to do what we think they will do or want them to do if they're given the right environment? There's a lot of evidence pointing to the fact that they probably will. A lot of the organ on the chip research and development, you know, you get the right type of villi growing in intestinal chips, you know, this kind of stuff. But, um, yeah. That's a pretty big unknown unknown. Right. Yeah, how that's going to work. Yeah, we don't know, we don't know. Right. And it sounds like, I I know you have uh, engineers, scientists, some with a chemistry background. Yep. Some with biology background, some with pre-med background. Yes. But now it sounds like you're going to need some scientists with a different set of skills to help you with some of those challenges. Yes. So identifying those folks, recruiting those folks to join in in a startup. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's all that's also, you know, it takes a certain kind of person to who's been in academia all their life to say, you know what? I think I want to take a shot at this. Do the startup thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's um it feels like a bigger risk than I think it actually is. Um so yes, we're gonna have to recruit some really top notch people. Luckily we have a big awesome mission that I think yeah. is very attractive and feels really good to work on. Um, but yeah, we're going to have to work on recruiting those people. We're going to have to get some, some different kind of specialties. Um, one thing that I've realized coming from what was a very safe and, you know, I was funded academic career for the most part, um, is that it's not as big of a risk as you think it might be to join a startup. Um, it, you know, if you do your homework and you like the people and you believe in what they're doing, I would say it's one of the least risky things you can do because having startup experience on your resume means you're resilient. You can think on your feet. You're willing to learn. It's it's really a great place to be. Yeah. Yeah. I know we've, we, you and I have talked a lot about learning agility as a key cultural touchstone in, in recruiting. Because Absolutely. in science, as you've explained to me, in science, you know, it's complex Science is hard. <laughs> Science is hard, right? And and uh, there's a well. We'll get into it a little bit about the, some of the ethical issues as well. But science is hard. It's complex. It has to be evidence based. So when when scientists say they know something, it's almost a little scary. The, when right. I talk to some of your scientists, they say, "Well, we don't know about that," and that's a very positive thing. Yes, it's, it's almost like in uh, as we say in in, in Zen in, in the mind of the. Uh, beginner you know there are very there are many possibilities in mind the expert there are a few right right so that open-mindedness is a critical component as well oh absolutely um you know you'll very a good scientist is 
typically lives in uncertainty because, um, and which makes it hard for us to communicate our message as scientists. You know, when a bunch of climate change scientists get together and they say, we are, we are 99% sure that the earth is doing this thing or 98% sure. Everyone's like, well, wait, what's this one or 2%? Why are you certain? (laughs) And it's because, um, there are caveats in the world and, and the natural world as well. So when you get a scientist who's like, this happens this percentage of the time in this way. And, and so it's hard to communicate our message sometimes. Um, but we have to be on, comfortable with a little bit of uncertainty and ambiguity in a startup world. And that's actually, it's very good because our scientists do know what they're doing and they do understand it. And we are getting the results we expect to get as we get them. And that helps us set more realistic goals than perhaps sometimes um, someone who doesn't understand the science who comes from a technology background who just says, Oh yeah, put a, put a kidney in an animal next year. And you're like, Hang on, I need another year or maybe another year right. and a half because because we are not always 100% on some of these things and we want to make sure we do it right. Better to do it right, right? We want it, we're okay. going to do it right. I think this is this technology and, and what we're going after are, are too important yeah, to not do right. right. So uh, let's talk about ethical issues. Yes, I'm sure. curious if that was a, 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 was that something you thought about going into this and what kind of feedback or pushback have you gotten around it? Yes. Um, so we, I, as soon as I realized um, something like this would work, um, you know, immediately what came to mind were some of the ethical issues. Cause I lived, I was a scientist and lived through when um, stem cell research was banned. And um, that came from a lot of lack of understanding from the public around what it actually meant and, and cell sourcing and, that's where we as scientists must communicate our message because we are not doing weird Frankensteinian things in the lab. We are making medical advances to truly help your, like to help your sister or, or your cousin, you know, like, like these are things that are very real. And so, um, I thought immediately about the ethics behind what we're doing. Um, we are a very, serious company in that we are out to make medical advances. Um, we are not out to do some bizarre human cyborg type research. That is not us, right. nor will it be. Right. Yeah. So that's, um, that's one big ethical issue. We're solving a lot of ethical problems too. Organ um, donation is a huge problem and there's a massive black market for buying organs, which, um, you know, if you, if you feel like, you know, bringing your day wow. down a notch, um, there's wow. a lot out there on Google around, I, I was, you know, our product is going to be an organ. So I was doing some research, what does it cost for an organ? And the black market is massive and scary. Um, people are doing horrible things to save another person's life. And I love the idea that we are going to erase that market with a very ethical product that is, you know, brought to you from a lab. Yeah. Yeah, it's, and you know, I think we can do this right. Yeah. We're paying attention to this. Yeah. Yeah. My experience if you pay attention to something, you will figure it out. Right? Yes. If you take your eye off the ball, it's hard to figure it out. Right. Exactly. I'm curious uh, because my work with you is around leadership. Yes. Not around biology. Correct. Uh, I'm just curious, you know, I remember from our first conversation, hey, I've been in academia all my life. 
how do I be a CEO? <laughs> it's like, wow, this is fertile ground. Yeah. I'm just curious. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> what have you learned so far? Oh, boy. Well, I learned, um, I think during our first conversation, I was very helter-skelter. And I think anyone who starts a company understands what it's like to be wearing 18 different hats and have five spinning plates in the air at the same time. And one of the first things I did was I got some help. <laughs> around that and I think you were really excited when I was able to respond to emails in a timely manner um so um you know it's interesting what I've learned um a lot of it's a personal journey um a lot of it's a personal journey I moved from kind of an individual contributor who may have wanted to lead a lab at some point to um someone who's definitely leading a group and not only interfacing with scientists but people who are um, assessing us very carefully as a business proposition. Right. Um, yes, you, you've got yeah. you've got business advisors, you've got scientific advisors, right. you've got a team, you've got a goal and a vision. Yeah, and uh, that's a lot different than being in a research lab. Very different, and um, it it really is. I'm trying to put my finger on it with some good words. It really is a personal journey to become a leader. You start to realize. Um, you don't get to make off-the-cuff remarks anymore. Um, of course, you can always joke. We have a lot of humor and good times in our lab. Um, but you take on responsibility in a new way. And um, being prepared for that is, um, I'm not going to say it so much. It's, it's a touch of an emotional journey, but you really have to dig deep within yourself and be prepared to take on real responsibility and be able to answer ethical questions. Mm-hmm. And you know, be able to work with team members from all over the world. I have a very ver- diverse team. Um, and it's it's been an amazing journey. And I, your contribution to that's been incredible, Teddy. You've, you've really helped a lot there. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's great fun. I, I enjoy watching, you know, we have our regular meetings and we have our phone calls. And I remember one time we were on the phone and uh, – you know, we were talking about a presentation to a potential investor and, and you just, you know, kind of blurted out, can you just hack our brains? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, you just get in there and, and tweak it around a little because we're just, you know, you go down one thought path and, and actually that's, I think that's a critical skill in leadership um, is flexibility. Yeah. Right. And so you can get locked into one way of thinking pretty easily if you're not careful and, you know, giving yourself the time um, to step back, take another look at it, um, assess the input of all the smart people around you. Getting smart people around you is really helpful. Yeah. Um, you know, look at things from a different way, turn it around, you know. Um, all of these things um, really help you to identify the best use of your resources and time. It's a big part of it when you are, when you found an organization with an idea and with a vision, there's just you. So every hat that's available, you're wearing. Exactly. And then you have to really be clear about, okay, what's, who's the next person? Who's the next most important person? What hat can I give them? Who's the next most important person? What hat can I give them? Yes. Right. So ultimately you want to wear fewer hats rather than more hats. Right. Right. And I would say, um, as you learn, as you're wearing all of those hats, you very quickly learn, um, what you're good at and what you're not good at. Um, you know, things that you really would rather not do or take you more time than it would take someone else. Um, and that's a good soul searching exercise too. You know, what, what do I just think at? Like, let me, let me find someone who loves doing that. 
get them get them on my side and hand it off because um a team is truly a team for a reason everyone has different skill sets and they bring their own thing to the table yeah yeah uh as we'd like to say uh, smart people hire smarter people yes yes that that's another thing too it's it's humbling coming from you know i had a good academic career but um it's humbling saying okay i just need to hire people smarter than me all the time as long as i'm doing that um i'm doing well <laughs> love it yeah all right uh, you know what? I I think we just wrap it up right there. It's been a All right. delightful conversation. Anything else you want to add? Um, you know, uh, no, I, I think we covered almost everything, you know, I, um, you know, I, I would just, I would just say in the transition from academia to brief stint at a startup to starting my own company, um, for anyone out there thinking of doing that, it's not as scary as it feels, you know, think about it. But, you know, when it comes down to it, ask yourself the question, like, is the time now? Should I do it? And if it is, do it. Don't put it off. It's it's really, really wonderful, and you'll learn a lot. Yeah. the uh, I'll share with you a saying I learned many years ago. Uh, see if I can remember this. To look is one thing. To see what you look at is another. To understand what you see is something else. Mm. To learn from what you understand is a fourth, but to act on what you learn is all that really matters. Oh, that's beautiful. Let's wrap it up on that. Let's wrap it up. All right. Mel, thanks so much. Thanks to you. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. 